Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to Surplus Lines, Insurance for the Difficult to Insure. What happens to those insurance customers who have difficulty getting insurance because of their size or the nature of their business, such as a company that manufactures explosives? They may be able to find coverage in the surplus lines market. Join Sam Garrow, Senior Vice President of the Compliance Department at Philadelphia Insurance Companies, as he sits down with Andrew Adams, President at River Valley Underwriters, Inc., and Nicole Zayak, Counsel in Wilkie Farr & Gallagher, LLP's Corporate and Financial Services Department, and a member of the Insurance Transactional and Regulatory Group, to discuss this market, how it operates, why it differs from standard insurance, and describe the unique way in which it is regulated. Surplus Lines is a multi-billion dollar business. Find out what it's all about in this exciting podcast. And now, here's your host, Sam Garrow. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. So my first question is, what is Surplus Lines and how does it differ from what we often think of as standard insurance? And Nicole, I I'll, I'll guess I'll ask that question of you. Sure, I'm happy to answer that. In what we refer to as standard insurance that most of us will encounter most of the times in our lives, you're buying insurance from an insurance company that's licensed or, as we say, admitted in the state where you're buying the insurance. But sometimes those insurance companies just don't have the coverage that someone needs. It's just not available for whatever reason. It's too high risk. It's too personalized, whatever the case may be. They have the ability to buy surplus lines insurance through specialized brokers from insurance companies that are not admitted or licensed in the state. And those insurance companies, because they're not admitted, are not regulated in that state where they're selling the insurance to the same extent and therefore can have more flexibility on things like rates and forms and product design. So you mentioned licensing. What are the licensing aspects of surplus lines? and? Again, what's the difference between what we would typically think of with insurance companies? So again, your typical insurance company is what we call admitted, and that means it has a certificate of authority in the state where it's doing business. Surplus lines carrier doesn't have that certificate of authority in the state where it's selling the insurance, but it does have a license of some sort from its home jurisdiction. If it's another U.S. state, it'll be a certificate of authority. If it's a foreign jurisdiction overseas, it may have another name, but it will be licensed somewhere. And then to sell surplus lines insurance in the United States, it needs to be deemed eligible in each state, which has some requirements regarding its capitalization and the authority in its home jurisdiction. And then the real licensing concern is on the brokers. These unlicensed insurance companies, the surplus lines insurers, can't go directly to insureds and sell them insurance. They can only do it through specialized surplus lines brokers. And those brokers are responsible for making sure that state laws are complied with in terms of the placement. And they are required to have a specialty license for surplus lines and not just an ordinary license. Andrew, we keep hearing that the agents, so to speak, play a huge role in surplus lines. So what is the agent's role when we talk about surplus lines? Yeah, it's a it's a kind of a complex relationship because as opposed to the admitted markets where a lot of agents are working direct with the carrier, the retail agent in the surplus lines market is not really going to have a ton of communication with the carrier. They're going to be communicating through a wholesale broker. So the retail agent operates just as the go-between between the insured and the wholesale broker. 
the actual wholesale broker, also called a managing general agent occasionally, is the one that actually gets the appointments from the carriers and is the one that is responsible for holding the licenses with the individual states. They're the ones that are responsible for paying these surplus lines taxes. Basically, most of the regulatory compliance falls on the individual wholesale broker from the individual policy level standpoint. Very little of it rolls up to the carrier level, except at the macro scale of the actual filing to be non-admitted in the state and then complying if the state asks you questions. But for the vast majority of it, the retail agent is going to have very little of the exposure to the carrier or the actual ongoings with the surplus lines process. And most of it's going to fall into the managing general agent wholesale broker. Uh, they have to serve kind of as the go-between between the agent and the carrier and also really are the ones responsible. If there's ever an issue with the process, they're the ones that are going to be having to answer the questions on the regulatory side. And speaking of the regulatory side, I guess I'll ask this question of you, Nicole. What are the regulatory aspects of surplus lines? You know, where do they fall? Who's responsible? What can you tell us about that? So as with any insurance, it's regulated at the state level in the United States. And the regulations govern, in the first instance, the brokers and their required licensing and data collection and record keeping and handling of funds. You then get to the regulation of the transaction itself, which is the determination of what we call the exportability of the risk. Can the risk be placed with a surplus lines carrier? And there is a strong preference for insurance to be placed with licensed carriers in most of the states, almost all states, I'd say, in almost all instances. If a licensed carrier will write the risk, that's where it's supposed to be placed. So there are different procedures and regulations for determining that insurance coverage isn't available from a licensed carrier and then exporting it to the surplus lines market. And you get into export lists and declinations and various regulations around how to determine that that availability just isn't there. You then get to the insurer's eligibility, and that has to have minimum capital and surplus and be licensed for the line of business in its home jurisdiction. You also have some things that will apply in ordinary state law for insurance to surplus lines carriers. In many instances, certain cancellation and non-renewal provisions will apply. Certain notices will be required. Occasionally, there are certain coverage offerings that are mandated that have to happen, even if it's a surplus lines policy. So you do have, on a state-by-state basis, different state generally applicable insurance laws that need to be considered. Andrew, if, if, if an agent doesn't have a surplus lines license, as you say, they, they need a special one, and they have a client that can't get coverage anywhere. So where do they go? What do they do? Yeah, in answer to the question. So typically, it depends on the states. There's some states that require both your broker, the wholesale broker or the managing general agent to have the license and the retail agent. Usually, in most of the states I do business in, in the South, Southeast, with a couple exceptions like Tennessee, only the wholesale broker is required to have the license. So the retail agent only has to have the general property casualty license. And that's, it's going to vary from state to state. So it's kind of hard to give a, a wide ranging answer. But generally, the retail agent just needs to be licensed to do property casualty business or whatever line of coverage that they're placing. And then the broker has to be licensed with a surplus lines license in that state. Now, if the wholesale broker gets approached or the managing general agent gets approached by an agent that has a client in a state they're not licensed in, there's a couple avenues they can take. And it really depends on what state you're looking at there. Some states are pretty easy that you get approached on a Monday, you can fill up the application same day for a license and pay the fee. And usually within the week, you'll get the license. 
Some of them are like Florida require you to be fingerprinted and you have to go through the whole process of doing that. So it really, it comes down to, you know, how long do you have to work on the client for the first part of it? And how long does the state take to review and do your application? You know, I've had states I've had to apply for licenses for that I hadn't been licensed in to write certain accounts. And some of them get turned around two, three days because I'm already licensed in other states. And they just say, yeah, you're licensed in other states, you're good to go. And then some of them want to do the full background checks and the fingerprinting and everything else. And that takes a lot longer. So you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons there. You know, from our standpoint, if we're not licensed in a state and we are approached with a client, a lot of times we'll either say, hey, we can't write this account. If there's somebody that we know that operates in that state, then we may pass that information along. But generally, if it makes sense and the account's worth doing it, it's a pretty simple process to get licensed. Once you've already met the requirements in one state, you're usually able to get a license. And in most states, then you have to just make sure you comply with the taxes and the different stamping fees if they have one, the different items that you have to put and notate on the policies. So you just have to kind of brush up on all your compliance stuff for each individual state and make sure that just because you got the license, now you understand the, the processes of actually operating in the state in addition to just having the license there. I've heard this concept called direct insurance. Can you uh, explain what that is and how it applies to surplus lines? So for most surplus lines, you're not going to see a lot of direct placements. It has been experimented with in the past. And by direct placements, let's kind of define that first. A direct placement typically refers to the insured is getting a quote or a policy from the company directly. They're not going through a, a retail agent. They're not going through a wholesale broker. You'll see that a lot more on kind of the main street America business, what would be the admitted side of the world. You'll have that like with the personal auto insurance, some homeowners, things that people view as a little bit lower risk. You know, ENS inherently, we are more risky based on the standpoint of the reason that a lot of stuff is being written in ENS is because it's a marketplace that changes so quickly. And there's so many different items and factors that are going into it. So you have to have this ability to adjust and maneuver. And they also want somebody that really understands what they're doing to be taking a look at it, as opposed to the algorithms and things like that, that a lot of the direct carriers have, which is why for surplus lines, it's usually goes through a wholesale broker, then to a retail agent, then to an insured so that you have an additional step in the process, verifying everything. So you're not going to see a lot of direct placements in the surplus lines. I just add that in most states, direct placement is very strongly disfavored or entirely prohibited in terms of dealing with the non-admitted carrier while the insured is in their own state. Typically, if you really want to do a direct placement, you have to go to the insurer and leave your home state, and then you still get taxed on the transaction. So it's the insurers themselves are prohibited from doing business on an unauthorized basis in states. And the surplus lines laws that require the use of brokers are an exception from that prohibition. Andrew, you also mentioned a notice. Can you explain what that is? So every state, and it varies from state to state, has different wordings that are required uh, to be placed on the deck page of the policy, deck page being the declaration page, should be the first or one of the first policies, like in Texas, they want the, the state complaint notice first, but there's going to be specific wording that's been approved by the state. It's usually been codified that you have to have a specific warning that says, hey, vaguely what it's going to say is this insurance company is not part of the guarantee fund because they're not admitted. So they're a non-admitted company. You understand you're purchasing from a non-admitted company. That's one of the, the 
disclosures that's on there. It usually has to be in like 12 point font in a specific typeface, a lot of little rules around that. Then you'll usually have a separate disclosure of, hey, because this is not admitted, there is X amount of surplus lines tax that is being charged on that. And it usually discloses the percentage of the tax is X. If it's got a stamping fee, you usually disclose what the stamping fee is. If it's like Mississippi and there's a separate windstorm association fee, then you're going to disclose that as well. And all of these taxes, all of the fees, all of the premiums have to be shown on the deck page and they all have to total up to what the total premiums are. And every state's going to have different rules about like what specifically has to be said, what specifically has to be shown. And that's all within there. Every state has a little subsection on surplus lines insurance and the disclosures that go with that. So that's just kind of the part and parcel when you're doing surplus lines, one of the additional compliance items that you have to have on a policy basis. Uh, and every state's going to have different rules on what they want to see or, or on that. And Nicole, you mentioned that the states would prefer or really want you to do business with an admitted company versus surplus lines. Why is that? Well, the admitted companies are directly regulated by each state where they do business and they participate in guarantee funds. So in the first instance, the regulators have the ability themselves to monitor the solvency of the insurance company. And the solvency is what ensures that when there are claims, they will be paid, protecting the consumers in the first instance. The direct regulation also goes to what's called market conduct, making sure that policies are correctly underwritten, that claims are properly paid, and gives the regulator a direct avenue to the insurer if there's a problem in any of those things. The licensed companies, admitted companies, are also required in many instances to file rates and forms, and that allows the regulator to ensure that people are not being charged excessive rates or inadequate rates or unfairly discriminatory rates. So an inadequate rate might sound like a good deal to you as an insured, but it does mean that it could put the solvency of the insurer at risk. And unfairly discriminatory rates just mean that people with the same risks are being charged different rates based on something that's not permitted, you know, unactuarial factors. So they want to be able to apply all of those rules. Also, you know, in the solvency, these guarantee funds are funds that provide a backstop to make sure insured claims get at least somewhat paid in the instance that the insurance company is insolvent. So from an admitted insurer, there are a lot of protections that the state can provide for its insureds, for its customers, its residents. And in the non-admitted market for surplus lines or any other means of going to an unlicensed insurance company, they just don't have that level of ability to protect consumers. And just kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit on the behalf of the surplus lines industry, there's an argument to be made that the guarantee funds and the oversight from the state is not necessarily that much of a differentiating factor. Just looking at like Florida and the Demotech admitted companies where so many have gone insolvent. You know, I almost would argue that the surplus lines companies, um, because they have to carry so much more capital, sometimes have a little bit of a uh, advantage there just from the standpoint of paying claims as opposed to the admitted companies. Because if you have the Florida issue where everybody's now hitting up the guarantee fund and you've had like 20 some carriers go insolvent, that's not really an ideal situation either. Yeah, there are definitely fewer surplus lines insolvencies historically than there have been admitted companies, but the regulators still prefer to have the regulatory oversight and view surplus lines 
from their perspective as an exception that should be used when necessary, but not as the default. Andrew, you mentioned that a lot of the regulatory aspects fall on the surplus lines brokers. Uh, Does the state do any audits of surplus lines? And if they do, what do they audit? Yeah. So every state has a different system of filing taxes on the surplus lines. So let's start with the basis of every state has a surplus lines tax rate. It is usually paid to either the state revenue fund. Some of them are the Department of Insurance. Some of them are, they have actual surplus lines associations that collect them and then remit them up to the state. So there's a different tax rate in every state, right? And so part of the process of filing and a purchase surplus lines policy is you have to file the taxes. Some of that's monthly, quarterly, whatever. And each state has a different requirement on what they want to see there. So like with the state of Texas, they want to see class code you used. They want to know what carrier you used, policy name, policy number, limits, where the breakdown of premium is by class code. And then a different example, like Arkansas, they just want to know what kind of policy it was, what was the premium, who was the carrier. And, you know, if you had fees and things like that. So you have varying degrees of how much data each party is wanting to collect. And so each state has different rules on what they audit, quote unquote, soft audit, right? So some of them will do every month, be like, hey, we haven't seen this class code used very frequently. Please provide a copy of the deck page so we can verify that this is the actual correct coverage. Some of them will be, you know, hey, we wanted to make sure on the payments that you guys have, we think it should total to this based on what you filed. You've paid this. Please provide your records on that. So the level of audit you get is really state by state. Some of them are really simple. It's just like, hey, this is what you say you filed. Please sign off and say this is everything that should have been filed. Great. Some of them are like, hey, we want to see literally every deck page of every policy you've filed, and we want to verify that everything is correct. And so because we write in 11 states, I have 11 different entities I have to deal with on that front, and everyone has different rules. And some of them are like, absolutely the easiest thing in the world to deal with. And they're just, hey, just pay us the surplus lines taxes and we're good to go. And then some of them are really, really data heavy and they want to make sure that everything is being plugged in. Even if they're getting paid the right amount, they want to make sure that they are also getting the right information. So yeah, a couple of times throughout the year, certain states you're going to get a, a call from them or usually an email from them and just say, hey, we reviewed these policies. We want you to send up the deck pages so we can verify this is the correct information or what have you. It just kind of depends on what state, what lines of coverage you're writing, and uh, how many policies you're writing, how often you're going to have to deal with the regulators. Nicole, I can't ever remember any company advertising saying, we're a surplus lines company. Can surplus lines companies advertise? As you've noticed, they don't. And that's because there are very strict restrictions on what they can do. There are states that have a prohibition on calling attention to a non-admitted insurance company. So if you're doing a national advertisement, those states would prevent you from saying you're a surplus lines carrier in an advertisement. Other states will allow an insurance company to advertise itself, but it can't mention its products or its prices. So you really get just brand advertising. So Really, the advertising that surplus lines carriers do is they're part of an insurance company group that has admitted carriers and the group advertises. And you will never have surplus lines mentioned in those advertisements of general interest. There will 
I think in the insurance industry itself, be targeted outreach and advertising to the broker community, to the licensed surplus lines brokers to let them know that they are out there, that they have products, but that will be very targeted and not in anywhere that the public would see. Andrew, can you explain the concept of declinations and whether there are any exceptions to that and how that works with surplus lines? Right. So every state has a rule on, you know, essentially they're trying to to get you to place business through the admitted markets first. So they have a rule on what they call, like you said, declinations, or there's a separate term that they will use for it. Basically, that proves that you've gone out and you've tried to secure insurance through an admitted marketplace. And it depends on the state, the number of times that you have to be declined for the risk. It could be three, it could be five, it could be whatever. They call that a due diligence form, essentially. And each state has different rules on whose responsibility the due diligence form is. So, for example, like Arkansas, the due diligence form is on the retail agent. It is not on the wholesale broker. So the retail agent has to complete it and they have to keep it on file. And the wholesale broker, only thing they would have to do is if the state asks for it, they have to be able to get it from their agent, provide it. That's the due diligence process in Arkansas versus like Alabama or Florida. They actually have written due diligence forms that have to be filled out, also Tennessee, and have to be kept on file for the wholesale broker and have to be you know, part of your tax submission, uh, essentially, in Tennessee. You have to have the affidavit, turn that in. Florida, you have to have it available in case the Department of Insurance contacts you, and same thing with Alabama. So the declinations, every state's going to have a rule about basically due diligence is what they're going to call it, that you've tried or attempted to place it through a admitted carrier. A certain number of times. Once you've exceeded that, then you're able to place it through surplus lines. But the onus on who it falls onto to actually make sure that the due diligence has been completed and the declinations has been completed varies from state to state. So a lot of the states in the South say that it's okay for the retail agent to be the one that does that, keeps the paperwork and things like that. Then there's some that say the wholesale broker actually has to have a copy of it in their file and have double checked on it. So it just kind of depends on the state and every state's going to be different. What is, I've heard the term export list. How does that relate to what you just talked about? Right. So every state, when in regards to kind of the export list, it's essentially the list of companies that are going to be allowed to write business in that state that have been approved as a non-admitted carrier, essentially. So just because you're a non-admitted carrier in one state does not mean that you're allowed to write in all 50 states. So you have to basically, kind of like getting admitted uh, from the standpoint of you have to go and ask permission just the difference of the onus on the regulation. You don't have to file your forms, your fees, et cetera, but you have to basically say, hey, we'd like to do business in your state. And then there's going to be a process of them saying, here's what you have to do to do business in our state before we allow you to be listed as one of the eligible insurers in our state. And every state's going to have different regulations on that. And some of them are very, very onerous on who they let in. And some of them are Uh, much more relaxed and want the companies to come in. So that's going to really kind of vary from state to state. Okay. Anything else you want to add about surplus lines companies or surplus lines insurance in general? You know, I think it's just from my standpoint, you know, I do it day in, day out basis. It's an incredibly fun field. It's constantly changing. Uh, It's always going to be constantly changing. It's a very, very interesting business to be in because you'll never have two of the same thing. Even if you're writing two welders, they're going to be completely different risks. And so there's a lot of opportunity uh, in the field. There's a lot of excitement in the field because it's a constantly growing and adapting field. 
trying to keep up with the marketplace as, as the world evolves and changes and the business world evolves and changes. Any examples of common things that you've seen that would typically be written in surplus lines? You know, we've had kind of a big shift on a lot of that recently. For example, it used to be hotels and motels used to be a heavily admitted class. But due to the kind of the performance on that, the loss history got so bad that most admitted carriers stopped writing them. So we started seeing a lot of those in the ENS world. Some of the emerging risks, so you're looking at like a lot of your cannabis because it's technically still federally illegal, but there are some states that allow it either recreationally or medically. Well, the admitted markets are not willing to touch that, but a lot of the non-admitted markets have seen an opportunity there. And and within the forms and within the regulations of the, what the state allows have come in and started writing that business to protect the businesses and the consumers there as well. You know, we see a lot of contractors, especially doing the construction for new homes, a lot of commercial construction. If they're doing anything above and beyond just the basic framing, things like that, the carpentry, if they're actually doing the masonry work, they're doing roofs, things like that, you're going to start seeing a lot of those drop into surplus lines. You're also going to see a lot of the coastal property continue to go to surplus lines, especially because of the hurricane activity that's happened in the south southeast areas and a lot of the tornadic activity even in the Midwest states and in the in the Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas region. You're going to see a lot of property continue to move that way just as admitted carriers kind of lose their appetite on it due to claims, frequencies, and just the evolving marketplace. Well, thank you both. This has been very interesting and I appreciate your time and I hope you folks that were listening enjoyed this podcast. Have a great day.